just to say this is a very exploratory paper and in part it arises out of a project that uh, an INTI project or a new integration project that I'm involved in called PROSINT that is promoting sustainable policies for integration. I'm not sure that that's actually what it's going to be about but that's the title of it. What I'm going to be talking about is not the findings of the project because we're still, at least the UK partners, are still in a very preliminary stage in doing the project. So it's more reflections on reading others' works and also reflections on what's going on in Britain that led me to kind of look at the way, argue that gender is extremely important in the way we think about what's going on in relation to integration discourses, practices and policies. Because I would argue that recent developments in integration discourse and policies have involved in a closer relationship of admissions policies with integration in a number of European states. And in fact, the subtitle should really be a European comparison. While such discourses and policies focus, that is, the admissions policy and integration on family migrants and patently target women migrants as, as family migrants because labour migrants are not covered by these admissions policies, there's been very little serious consideration of how gender categories operate in relation to broader political discourses around the construction of who we are and who they are, or who them and which them, of course, and the constitution of national and, in some instances, of course, local and regional social and political communities. Gender issues have become very significant, obviously, in the backlash against multiculturalism, and Phillips writes about this at some length. And in many European countries, gender and sexual relations have in fact moved to the centre stage in debates about the necessity to enforce integration. I would suggest probably less so in the UK than in the countries such as the Netherlands, which I would pay quite a lot of attention to. And especially in terms of Muslim migrants. So it's an integration which is not according to what, how the EU sees it as being a two-way process, but rather within a fairly assimilationist, very much a one-way process. And here, gender differences between the us, who are liberal, westernized, modern, and the them serve to delineate those who can be integrated and, of course, under what conditions they could or should be integrated. So in the first section, I shall outline some recent developments in the immigration integration nexus in different European states, and in particular, the recent proliferation of pre-entry tests where the gender dimension is absolutely clear. Secondly, I trace the recent movement from the periphery of debates about immigration, where migrant women were largely invisible or mere appendages of men, to the centre stage, and in which that movement to the centre stage has in turn acquired a very heightened, though not necessarily positive, visibility for them. Now, such shifts, I would argue, being precipitated by different constellations of socio-political events, sometimes often very dramatic, and as well within a context of questioning of national identity and an increasing support for populist far-right movements, the whole lot may have gone together. And it's within this, you could say, concatenation in which certain sexual and gender identities are deemed to be problematic and threatening and incompatible with Western liberal principles. So, for example, we have the recurrent debates about the headscarf in France since 1989 and recently the vote um, or the, and the acceptance even by the Constitutional Council of the ban on burqas in public 
which interesting enough, only one vote was against, but there were 100 abstentions, largely by the left. In Belgium, this has become a problem. In the Netherlands, of course, the murder of Theo van Gogh and the high-profile activities of Ayan Hirsi Ali and her denunciation of Islam. We have honor killings and the headscarf issue in Germany as well. Also in Nordic countries, these are issues. And I would suggest in Britain, I think probably forced marriage has been the big issue which has pushed the pre-entry tests uh, being applied. Of course, underneath it, there are other real reasons that are going on, as we'll see. In all of these countries, the targeting of migrant practices takes place in the context, as I said, of questions about national identity, and particularly in the Dutch and the German case, a proposal basically about the necessity to have a leading and hegemonic culture. And in this context, we have a whole litany of backward practices that need to be stamped out. That is, bailing, honor killings, genital mutilation, arranged and forced marriages, and so on. And it can also include domestic violence, as if domestic violence is an issue, of course, that Western individuals do not face at all. And then, in, lastly, after having looked at this, I want to draw out the different types of discourses around integration and the relationship to gender relations and sexualities as they have emerged in different countries. That may be quite brief, depending on how time goes. Okay. So, immigration, integration nexus. So, in the past uh, decade, there's been a flurry of changes to entry, settlement, and citizenship policies, <coughs> and the use of integration measures to both reduce the flow of immigration of those seeking to settle in particular. Integration measures have been deployed, of course, as here as a means of immigration control and to increase the amount of human capital that those who are entering, and particularly family migrants, bring to the country through making greater demands on them in terms of their competence, linguistic competence, their knowledge of a country's society, and actually the ability to use a computer, because if the test is done on a computer, that is also part of your human capital. It's been argued, for example, by the Dutch in particular, that continually high levels of migrants, and especially family migrants, from socioeconomically disadvantaged and culturally different countries presents a problem for the integration of those who are already in the country. And Sarah Goodman argues that integration is primarily concerned precisely with the performance and degree of incorporation of newcomers in a host society, and that it raises the issue, of course, of under what conditions does someone with eligibility to obtain citizenship, because here she was talking about citizenship more, are they capable of surmounting the barriers in their pathway towards citizenship? So what I'm arguing here is that one of the most significant trends in this placing of barriers and the journey towards the eventual incorporation as a citizen, if that happens, is that these integration measures have been progressively pushed back in the initial stage from naturalization or citizenship, back to permanent residence, and then more recently in a whole series of countries, and we are about to be done as well next month, to pre-entry immigration tests as an indicator of the ability and willingness to be integrated. So what started as tighter conditions of citizenship are also being applied to the earlier stages, both permanent residence and entry itself. And indeed, we see that the whole question of settlement has become of greater concern 
certainly to the British government in the last few years, that is the number of people who are able to settle, not just the number of people who are entering, but also the number of people who are settling. And indeed, in controlling our borders, we stated that long-term settlement must be carefully controlled and provide long-term economic benefit. Permanent migrants must be economically active as possible, put as little burden on the state as possible, and be as socially integrated as possible. And we'll see that in Theresa May's statement, that she made in introducing the pre-entry tests for the 29th of November, she almost paraphrases these two sentences. And we also see that recently released figures on the highest, on the high levels of grants of settlement since 1991 have set off a new round of announcements, as we said, about the need to control and reduce the numbers of those who are, in fact, settling. Now, the current developments pushing tests further down the line towards the point of admission is, in, indeed, the adoption initially by the Netherlands, of pre-entry tests, so they can be kind of seen as the pioneers of this development. The law on civic integration abroad introduced a new entry requirement for family migrants, knowledge of the Dutch language and society. And the knowledge of the Dutch language was in fact only at a level of speaking and listening. It wasn't in fact writing, which was said, well, we can't ask people to write because we have illiterate women, which is quite an interesting aside here in terms of why certain criteria were used. And the argument here is roughly fourfold in terms of why this was necessary. This is the Dutch argument. Enable them to get by, better informed choice on moving to the Netherlands, aware of their responsibilities for their own integration and efforts expected of them, which of course fits very much into the neoliberalization of the whole process that the state has effectively withdrawn and the pre-entry tests are another very strong indicator. Is this your personal responsibility and, of course, your money to be able to do that? Because in the Dutch case, you get absolutely no help whatsoever. You don't even get books towards it. And lastly, as a selection mechanism to pick those with motivation and perseverance. So again, this is both a human capital element, but also it's, it's to show the determination that you have to succeed in both the present and in the future. Other measures, too, with an integration element, such as increased age of marriage, have been implemented not only, of course, in the Netherlands, but also in Germany, in the UK, and in Denmark. And this has been actually quite an important element, because, in fact, in the UK, it, it came out, or the consultation was held at the same time. So what we see here very much is an attempt to reduce the flow and make far more difficult the flow of family migrants into <coughs> European countries. The argument here, again, in targeting migrant girls, was being older, they would allow girls to better resist the influence of parental authority and other familial traditions, if desired. Marriage was not an issue in civic integration courses originally in the Netherlands, but increasingly over the last few years, there's been a rejection of marriages abroad, and that was actually brought up by Jack Straw a decade ago when he's exhorted, again, Muslim girls largely, to marry within the country rather than marrying abroad. So in a 2008 report in the Netherlands, it presented it as a cause for concern for integration, not because of the earlier issue of numbers, but because of its effect on integration in the country, and it argued that most marriage migrants are lowly educated and barely speak Dutch, and may therefore reinforce segregation. So here again, this is this linking up what you can impose at the point of entry and before entry, of course, with what happens subsequently. 
I won't go into whether it's been successful. It's, in fact, been very much debated amongst those who've done studies in looking at the effects, so I'll skip through that. But what was very interesting, again, was there was a concern was expressed for failing parents and continuing immigration, where it was argued that continuous immigration combined with failing integration may produce processes which in time result in the marginalization of specific population groups. Because many newcomers have parenting duties, which the child, while the child will also form a family in time, the process can be passed on from one generation to another. Again, this is a very important argument. It's about breaking, you think about Keith Joseph's you know, cycle of deprivation, it's almost breaking the cycle of non-integration, we could see it as. And then the Dutch continue to argue, both parents often lack the frames of reference that are necessary in the Netherlands to fulfill the pedagogical family duties. They don't know their way around the Dutch institutions, so their children might grow up unfit to be Dutch citizens. This is going to be quite important, you'll see, when I start talking about some of the discourses of integration. So the, integration, the education of children acts as a crucial boundary site. And indeed, it links up with Anne Cryer's remarks which are very interesting because she goes back to 2001, not to 2007, as many people think. Now, if we turn to the UK, pre-entry tests were actually originally proposed by Anne Cryer in, in Parliament in 2007, in February 2007. She was the MP and quite notorious for her involvement in all kinds of debates on veiling, forced marriages, on a killings, etc. And she saw that an English language requirement, as she said in Parliament, was a means of <coughs> overcoming ghettoization and underachievement. Now, she had, in fact, already, when I looked her up uh, on Wiki, uh, she had already generated a lot of controversy post the 2001 riots in Bradford, because she, at that time, had already made a direct connection between arranged marriages difficulties in learning English, and the success of different ethnic minorities, communities in the UK. So her sentiments actually were very similar to the Dutch. She said, a great deal of the poverty in the Asian community in Bradford and Keeley is down to the fact that many of our Asian community do not speak English, or very little. What I'm saying is that if Asian parents who arrange marriages for their kids were to look around the Asian Muslim community here, they would do better for their children, their own family, and their community. And in fact, post the, the 2001 events, she actually suggested that if this population doesn't do it voluntarily, we might have to look at immigration regulations. So, you know, she was very much ahead of her time in what's happening. So when the government eventually acted on her suggestion, the forced marriage debate was continuing, held a consultation in 2007, two-thirds of the respondents opposed entry tests, saying it was much more effective and less discriminatory to enable spouses to learn English once in the country. Nevertheless, the previous Labour government decided that it would go ahead, although it put it off a number of times. I thought very interestingly also that the level of English that they were demanding of family migrants or spouses in particular is the same level that is being demanded of tier two skilled workers. So it's quite interesting. I think one can make something of this because I think there are employment implications here. So as we know, uh, Theresa May announced this on the 9th of June this year. And she stated that I believe being able to speak English should be a prerequisite for anyone who wants to settle here. The new English requirement for spouses will promote integration, remove cultural barriers, and protect public services. 
my understanding is by public services, we mean, well, we won't have to provide ESOL anymore, and they won't need interpreters when they go to the doctors or anything else, so that's one, one aspect there. It is a privilege, as she said, to come to the UK, and that is why I am committed to raising the bar for migrants and ensuring that those who benefit from being in Britain contribute to our society. Again, this is a matter, as the Dutch had said earlier on, of showing your motivation and perseverance. And then this was further announced by Damien Green that this test would come in as of 29th of November. And one of the important things here to remember is this actually probably has nothing to do with integration whatsoever. It is precisely because the announcement came at the time that it came, an attempt to reduce the immigration levels of family migrants because UKBA itself estimates that this is likely to reduce it from the Indian subcontinent by about 10%, although that's not at all certain, but that's what their estimation is. Okay, I want to move on from there to look at the second point that I want to bring out is that, of course, these pre-entry tests are targeting spouses. And in this case, once they talk about, although you may use family or spouses, what we're really talking about is women. Because although there's a varying balance between females and males in different forms of family migration, there are a majority of women entering through different forms of family migration. And in family reunification, it can be 80%. In family formation, it's much more balanced. But the interesting thing again here is that family migration is depicted as being largely female, which actually is not correct, because there are about a third are males. And it has quite important implications here because the way that females and males are depicted, represented, is quite different. In a lot of the discourses here, what you see is that women are deemed to be victims, they're deemed to be under the sort of patriarchal jug. Effectively, they have to be protected. Whilst men are oppressive, they're rapacious, and they've probably got very little to do with family life. So there's a kind of very clear gendered representation and these kinds of views of men and women, you see both in Anne Cryer's rhetoric, but also in Ali Hersey's uh, as well. So women as border guards of cultural difference and as reproducers of the migrant population, and this is quite an important discourse in the Netherlands, now and in the future, serve to demonstrate the backwardness and maintenance of traditions which need to be cast aside. So in the UK, for example, Bernard Crick, writing in The Guardian in April 2004, referred to the necessity of compulsory English tests directed at isolated women, supposedly prevented by patriarchal community structures from participating in the public sphere and therefore not being able to interact with others. And in this process, of course, of, in a sense, demonizing almost migrant women, we produce a very homogenized view, obviously, of migrant women and of their gender relations and sexuality in particular communities. And this is the third area that I would like to have a look at. Now, this leads to my third point, which is that of the role being played by gender equality and sexuality in contemporary discourses and practices around cultural differences between the majority population and the minority populations. Now, there's actually an extensive literature on gender, sexuality, intimate relations, national identities, and colonial regimes, and I'm not going to go into that, but that's some writers like Sala van Balsam have tried to pick up the 
literature in the colonial period and colonial regimes, how and how does it impact and how does it differ from what are the discourses at the moment? And say there is an extensive literature, for example, Anne Stoller's work on carnal knowledge and imperial power. Now, that's one area where I think it would be interesting to work our way through, but I'm not going to address that in the talk today. But one of the things that also struck me, and it made me think back to the 1990s when I'd actually written a piece about the far right in France and its use of sexual you know, imagery and gender relations in separating out migrants from non-migrants, was that at that time, and I would actually argue until fairly recently, this has been a prerogative of the far right. You see this in Le Pen's discourse. He's always using it to shock people. That's very typical. But he did use it. So for Le Pen, immigrant men undermine the virility of French men, and they threatened French <coughs> women. Women, as guardians of the family and the nation, have to be protected against rape by immigrant men. That was the kind of things he was saying. Because you had a very much, you know, family equals the nation. Now, this began to change very much with what happened after 1989, which was the, the first headscarf debate. And then every few years, you had another intervention in the headscarf issue. But basically, from the 1990s onwards, women then, and mainly Muslim women, served as evidence of the cultural gap between misogynist Islamic attitudes and liberated Western women. Fast forward a little bit more. There's been quite a lot of work in the last few years on looking at the question of gender relations and multiculturalism. Now, that literature actually also goes back earlier, but, of course, Susan Moller-Oakin, you know, wrote a very well-known book, Is Multiculturalism Bad for Women? And Anne Phillips uh, has also taken up a project looking at multiculturalism. So the point that she and uh, Sawiti Sahasa make, however, is that this whole question of gender relations and rights of women in particular have largely gone unnoticed in academic commentary in relation to the crisis of multiculturalism. Because in the past, there was feminist writing, certainly, on multiculturalism as a threat, as a risk, but also the fact that it was often male-dominated organizations which kind of ran the multicultural debate. So that position there. But we see that the backlash to multiculturalism in political discourse and in policies has certainly pushed women very much and gender relations and the rights of women very much to the fore. And again, I'm going to start off looking at what's been going on in the Netherlands. In the Netherlands in particular, migrant women, really more than anywhere else, have moved from the invisible periphery to the all-too-visible core. In what Prince and Sahaso, in a special issue in Ethnicities of 2008, termed the new realism approach to the social question, the social question, as they called it, of the 21st century, that is the integration of ethnic minorities into Dutch societies. Now, by new realism, they mean the need to listen to ordinary people who are closer to everyday life and should be represented and their complaints taken seriously, the courage to break taboos and to break the hold of progressive elites, the reaffirmation of national identity and Dutch culture as the dominant or leading culture, and the reality of practices amongst migrants. And here, again, Ali Hersey was seen as a key representative of this new realism. And we have lots of echoes here, of course, as well. So the focus placed on migrant women and their integration varies, of course, here between countries. It's not going to be the same in the UK. It's not the same exactly in France. 
And it needs to be situated within the different meanings and practices ascribed to integration in each of these countries and the notions of gender equality, which also differ in various countries. Now, in many states, such as Germany and the Netherlands, tests at different stages ask questions about gender equality as a core value of the society and the acceptance of homosexuality, which has become, you know, absolutely, for the Dutch, this is part of one's uh, core liberal values. But a Calvinist pastor actually did say, uh, well, he said, I think many of my flock would not agree with that. <laughs> but, so what I suggest that we need to do is to look at how this plays itself out differently in different states. And what I try to do, and here this is really still quite preliminary and exploratory, is to pick out from the different debates that are going on in the various countries some of the discourses that have emerged. And I've kind of listed them. There's what I call general integration, which I think the British one probably is. It's the argument that you can, in a sense, better interact with others, but you can kind of get by. So I call this sort of general integration. It doesn't enter into any kinds of specific or explicit gender differences. And of course, in Britain, the dominant discussion was earlier on cohesion rather than integration. And again, there still exists this differentiation between integration and cohesion. The second one is economic integration. And that's actually quite prominent in Britain as well. And what I was sort of hinting there, that it interests me the fact that the pre-entry test has the same level of English as the tier two. And I wonder whether what they're trying to get at, without explicitly stating it, is that it's about enabling those who are entering to enter the labor market. Now, economic integration, I would argue and say yes or no, that I think in Scandinavian countries that is the dominant because it's expected that women work and if migrant women don't work because, not because they can't get a job, but because they're pulled back by patriarchal authority or anything, that's not being Swedish or Norwegian or you know, Danish, etc. So this is very strong in Scandinavian countries. Next one would be what I call protection, a discourse of protection. Seeing women as vulnerable victims and oppressed by patriarchal systems. That means that the integration discourse is about saving them, saving them from their men in particular. The next one could be what you call emancipation, which I think is stronger obviously in the protection. It is about allowing women to lead their own lives, though in this case, as we, I haven't got the time to go into, in the Dutch case, one of the complaints is that the socioeconomic integration has been completely ignored. It's about emancipating women. And the last one, I think, is also extremely interesting, and that is women as the reproducers of good national citizens. And the idea behind this is, of course, of women as mothers. So why is it important in a parliamentary debate, it asks, to introduce the law on civic integration abroad? Women of Turkish and Moroccan origin come to the Netherlands, then are not prepared for Dutch society, do not speak the language, do not know how we behave towards one another in the Netherlands, and know nothing about, Dutch, about the Dutch values. However, they are the mothers of children. Okay, very important. Because as the mothers of children, they are therefore the guardians of the next generation. And they have to reproduce the next generation as good Dutch citizens, good French citizens, because it's actually a very Rousseauian idea, the Republican citizen. You know, in a Republican <coughs> ideal of citizenship, women have no place. 
but they did have a place as the good mother, as the producers of the next you know, Republican citizen down the line. So it, the, the, the good mother uh, reproducing the next generation is a feature, certainly, of the certainly Dutch discourse. And the motto that uh, certain liberal parties have used is, if you educate a woman, you educate a family. Okay, so in conclusion, I would argue that as the imposition of, of integration criteria moves ever more closely to the point of entry, the centrality of gender relations and the role of migrant women, and in many states, have become the targets of integration. And that's become much more evident as we've progressed. So for example, again, if we look at the Dutch case, this happened post-2003, very much linked with the assassination of Pim Fortuyn, very much with Theo van Gogh and Hersey, etc. But in a sense, what happens is that suddenly we have a discovery of migrant women as being the target group that needs to be <coughs> obliged to integrate. At the same time, as we saw in the earlier listing of the discourses, the necessity of doing this is because they are seen as good mothers. But the good mothers don't actually relate necessarily, of course, to the socioeconomic integration. So we not only homogenize your female migrant population, we also decide what role we're going to allocate them in society. So it's often based, of course, here very much on a homogenized image of the uneducated, the backward, the female migrant who's a victim of patriarchal cultures. And in, indeed, interesting enough, in the Dutch case, the Green Party was the only one to point out that, the, that migrant women actually have a level of education. Uh, they're not just all illiterate. Again, one of the points I think is worth thinking about is that this vision is not just promulgated, or the effects of the vision is not just promulgated by political parties and by the media. There are also some feminists who, in effect, by victimizing women or creating migrant women as victims to be protected, to be saved from all kinds of dangers, actually place them in a position to be forcibly integrated for their good. So that's one point that I'd like to make. Secondly, I think if we look at the, what's going on in the different countries, it seems to me this kind of representation, a very homogenized, victimizing representation, and forcible integration is much stronger in those countries in which it's very much directed towards Muslim women and to Islam as the major problem. And if you think about what's been going on, not just in the Netherlands in the last two weeks, builders and his also the kind of immigration policies that have been proposed by their coalition, but if you think about what's happening in Germany currently, where Sarazin has also said we shouldn't allow in any more Muslim migrants. I think this is pushed much, much more strongly in those countries where it's Muslims that are the target of this rather than migrants more generally. Or. And the point here is that the, the more that the debate becomes culturalized and marginalizes the socioeconomic dimension of integration and the structural inequalities that all migrants face, of course, not just migrant women, the more this compulsory integration is forced. And of course, the incompatible differences then demand stronger pre-entry measures, which not only reduce flows and increase human capital, but it also necessitates the demonstration 
and the constant demonstration of motivation and perseverance, which, as we saw in Theresa May's words, will reward you, in the end, by the privilege of being allowed to enter the UK and being allowed to settle in the UK. So my final words is here is what I think, why, one of the reasons I think the whole issue of gender relations and sexuality is so important is it's become totally instrumentalised and is being very much manipulated in political debate in order to push the idea of certain measures of integration.